John 11 today. We're going to look at the first 16 verses today. We'll pick up at verse 17 and, and go on next week. Um, let me read the first 16 verses to us. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let's go also, that we may die with him. Today, I want to invite you to join me in discovering what Jesus meant, who he is, but what he meant by saying he is the resurrection and the life. The thing that sets Jesus' people apart from most others is that they're waiting for resurrection. Resurrection is very different from reincarnation. It's also different from what most people mean by life after death. Uh, The Christian hope is not simply life after death. It's resurrection. In the light of the resurrection, we can make sense of things in our lives that will never make sense otherwise. So far in this series, we've heard Jesus reveal himself as the bread of heaven, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, and the good shepherd. And in each case, we learn something about him and something about ourselves. Those claims were bold claims, sensational even. This claim, I am the resurrection and the life, is something different. Every Jew knew what resurrection is, though not all Jews in Jesus' day or in ours believed it was a real thing. Resurrection was the end times, God-empowered event in which all people who've ever lived come back to life. How on earth could Jesus claim to be that? That's what I am. As we come to this Extraordinary claim, which we're going to get to in verse 25. So we're really going to zero in on this next week. We'll see that Jesus reveals who he is in the midst of real life, not in some ancillary religious life. That's important for us to understand. He reveals himself as the bread of heaven to people who are hungry. He reveals himself as the light of the world to people who are lost and unsure. He reveals that he's the door of the sheep to people who want to enter God's fold but don't know how. It's when the cultural and religious wolves are howling at us 
or when we've strayed and put ourselves in danger, or when our souls are malnourished and need to be restored, that we discover Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus reveals himself in real life. He reveals himself as the resurrection and the life when a brother and a dear friend dies. We find out who Jesus is in our real lives with their real tragedies and heartbreaks and worries about the future. We can get the idea that we need to go somewhere, either physically or in some mystical spiritual way in order to encounter Jesus, but that's not how it works. He comes to us. He comes to earth and enters our humanity, was made flesh and lived among us. And he does it in a time of poverty, tyranny, and oppression. He comes to us as individuals in our real lives with all their beauty and ugliness, all their happiness and sorrow. If we won't meet Jesus in our real lives, we won't meet him at all. If you won't meet Jesus in your life, the life you're living right now, you won't meet him. Books are helpful and good, but books are not enough. And I say that as someone with a healthy love and deep appreciation for good books. But books, sermons, Bible studies, while being a great and God-given help, are no more a replacement for personal ongoing encounters with Jesus than a cane is a replacement for a leg. People get to know Jesus in real life. And life was as real as it could get for Martha and Mary. It was gritty, painful, and full of fears. They had watched their brother's condition deteriorate, and they were helpless to do anything about it, but they knew someone who could. The one who doesn't wait for us to come, but instead comes to us. So they sent him word. Then they waited and waited. They didn't have instant messaging or email or even a post office. They had a friend who walked for a day or two to deliver the message. They calculated how long it would take for Jesus to receive the message and then travel back to them. There were so many variables, but they knew the earliest possible time, and that's what they were hoping for. I'm sure they wondered, why didn't we send somebody before now? Why did we wait so long? While they waited for Jesus, their brother got worse. He hadn't eaten for days. He wasn't drinking. His complexion lost its color. He was sleeping whenever the pain didn't keep him awake. His breathing became labored and irregular, and their fears increased and increased. These were two unmarried women in a culture where singleness was regarded as a calamity and a curse. Their brother was almost certainly the wage earner for their family. So even as they were battered for fears about their brother, they could see another storm on the horizon, an economic one. How could they live without his income? What would they eat? What would happen to them? I frame all of this for us so that we'll see that Jesus reveals himself to us in the midst of our real lives with their powerful emotions. If all we know of Jesus comes from books and sermons, we don't know enough. 
We must meet Jesus in life, our lives, our real lives. Otherwise, we'll not know him. We'll only know about him. When you and I meet Jesus in our real lives, there's an impact on people around us that doesn't happen when we read a book or hear a sermon. This is an important reality to grasp, especially for parents who want to influence their kids for Jesus and grandparents. The best thing, and very nearly the only thing, you can do to help your kids encounter Jesus is to encounter him yourself. So many people who abandon their parents' faith never saw it as indispensable for real life. Instead, they saw it as optional for a religious life an option that they didn't find appealing. Every time we encounter Jesus in our real lives, right where we are, ripples of that encounter go out. They spread to the people nearest us and even to people far from us. And each ripple moves people in relation to Jesus. In our text, what happened in the lives of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary was more like a tidal wave than a ripple. It dramatically affected the apostles, the other disciples, people who knew nothing about Jesus and even Jesus' enemies. Not everyone moved closer to Jesus because of it. Some moved further away. But in each case, something real happened because real people in the midst of their real lives encountered Jesus. Now, remember what I said earlier. In the light of the resurrection... We can make sense of things in our lives that will never make sense otherwise. That means we must, even in the midst of some trying moment or unexpected opportunity, we must remember the big picture. Remember that nothing, not even death, can separate us from God's love or exclude us from his purpose. What is happening to you right now does not exclude you from God's purpose. In fact, God will use it for his purpose. Because of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, we'll be all right. Better than all right. We'll be great. But we must remember. A few years ago, the Chicago Cubs, I mean, it's been more than a few years, but uh, they, after 97 years of not making it to the World Series, 97 years, it was 2003, they thought they had a chance. There's a guy named Steve Bartman. He's one of those diehard Cubs fans who, whose lives revolve around the endless hope of seeing the Cubs win the World Series. 2003 it almost became a reality. It's game six of the National League Championship, the Cubs leading the Marlins three games to two. The Cubs had shut out the Marlins for seven and a third innings. The score was three nothing. The the Cubs were on their way to the World Series if they could maintain a three-run lead for just five more outs. The Marlins' Louis Castillo hit a foul ball to the edge of the stands in left field. The Cubs' outfielder, Moises Alou, was there to make the out. He leapt up into the air. The ball was just inches from his glove. And at that moment, lifelong Cubs fan Steve Bartman 
forgot all about the World Series, forgot about 97 years of losses, and he reached for the foul ball, deflected it, and ruined any chance the Cubs had of making that out. And it was like the Cubs curse struck again in that moment. After that, everything changed. Chicago gave up eight runs in the next inning and two-thirds, lost the game, lost the next game, lost their chance to go to the World Series, the thing for which Steve Bartman lived. All of Chicago was angry at him. It wasn't safe for him to leave his home. After that, he said, I had my eyes glued on, on the approaching ball the entire time and was so caught up in the moment that I didn't even see Moses Alou much less that he might have a play on the ball. Had I thought for one second that the ball was playable or had I seen Alou approaching, I would have done whatever I could to get out of the way and give him a chance to make the catch. I think that's revealing. Had I thought for one second, but he hadn't. And you know what? Like him, we get caught up in the moment. Probably some of you are caught up in a moment right now. We get so focused on what's coming that we forget who's coming to meet it. That happened to me just this week. We get scared or we get excited and we take or rest control from the only one who knows the big picture can make things come out right. Jesus knows what we don't. But you know what? We forget even what we know in the stress of the moment. When someone gets sick that we love, or we lose a job or a friend, Jesus knows what needs to happen. He knows what he's going to do and knows that God will make all things new through him. He knew this when he got the message from Martha and Mary. He wasn't afraid. Notice what he says, verse 4. This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, no sickness ends in death for his people the people who have the life, who have Jesus. Jesus' people can say about anything that happens to them, even terminal illness, so-called, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. You can say that about what's going on in your life right now. When Jesus heard about Lazarus, his father showed him that he was at work in the situation. That's John 5, 19 and 20. He, he showed him what he was doing. Jesus went to Martha and Mary knowing something that they, not to mention his, his disciples, didn't know. He knew he would raise Lazarus. Now here's something to keep in mind. When, when you're facing uncertainty or loss, Jesus always knows something you don't. Always. Because the disciples, Martha, Mary, the twelve, didn't know what Jesus knew and didn't know that they didn't know it, what Jesus did next didn't make any sense. 
I mean, how could it? Look at verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus' delay was misunderstood. To the apostles who were with him just a couple miles from Lazarus' home, when an attempt was made on his life, Jesus' delay seemed to convey a reluctance to go back. To Martha and Mary, far away and completely in the dark about what was going on, the reason for Jesus' delay was inscrutable. If he really loved them, wouldn't he drop everything and run to their side? Uh, the Greek of verse 5 gives us something you don't see in the translation we're using. A more literal translation goes, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus loved them. Therefore, he stayed where he was. This delay didn't come out of hesitancy or fear, but out of the love of one who knew something they didn't know. The disciples were surprised and displeased when two days later, Jesus said to them, let's go back to Judea. They tried to dissuade him. After all, if he wasn't worried about it, why did he, didn't he go back two days ago? They tried to talk Jesus out of it, tried to talk him out of his plan, something which I think we have all tried at one time or another. But Jesus knew that he was himself, the resurrection and the life. He knew his father wanted him to go back to Judea and raise Lazarus. The disciples didn't know that, and it never occurred to them that Jesus might know something they didn't. In their fear, they tried to talk him out of doing his father's will. And that's when Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. If they thought going back to Judea was a mistake before, after they heard Lazarus was dead, it seemed downright foolish. What could possibly be gained? I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard people say to me, I don't know how any good can possibly come from this. Well, of course you don't. Because you don't know what Jesus knows. And you don't even know you don't know it. Look at verses 14 and 15. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, that you may believe, but let's go to him. If you read that in Greek, it is, it is almost shocking. It reads like this, Lazarus died and I rejoice on account of you that I wasn't there. Lazarus died and I rejoice. How that must have jarred. Jesus supposedly loved Lazarus. Does his love mean no more than that? It makes no sense, but things make sense in the light of the resurrection that make no sense apart from it. In the light of who Jesus is, the resurrection and the life, and in the light of what he intended to do, raise Lazarus from the dead, and what he intends to do, raise you and me from the dead, those jarring words turn out to be full of hope. People tried to kill Jesus the last time he was in Judea. Upon his return, he waited outside the village and sent word for Martha to come to him. Next week, 
Next week we'll see what happened then. And it's full of hope and riches. And we'll hear Jesus reveal himself to Martha and to the other disciples and to us as the resurrection and the life. Until then, let's apply to ourselves what we've already seen. So something's coming at you. Maybe you just found out about it. And it's coming fast. And maybe it seems bad, terrible even. Or maybe it seems good. Either way, you can't take your eyes off of it. You're caught up in the moments. All you see, it seems like you need to get ahead of it. You need to take control of it. Don't get so focused on what's coming that you forget who is coming to meet it. That happens to us. Don't forget Jesus. Don't snatch it out of his hand. In the situation you're in right now, stop and look for Jesus. Trust what you know about him. Trust him. Not in some ancillary religious life, but in your real life. If you don't know him well enough to trust him, then make up your mind right now that you will get to know him. I can't think of a better way for you to start than go to that D group meeting on Tuesday night over in the West Building. Jesus sees what you can't see. He knows what you don't know. Don't panic. Don't wrest control from him. Trust him. Look at your own situation and say about it what Jesus says. It is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. If that's true, and it is, if that's true, it changes everything. Would you say that with me right now? And what I want you to do is get in your mind the thing that's been occupying you. It might be something bad. It might be something good. Either way, can you say this with me? Say it now. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Say it again. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. If that's true, it changes things in your life. And it's true. Let's pray. God, we are so like Steve Bartman. We mess up the very thing that we want. Because we get focused on the wrong thing. Lord, somehow, in the midst of what we're going through right now, would you help us lift our eyes and see Jesus coming? Amen.